Hello all and good morning. Um, I'm recording this on Saturday, the 29th of August. Um, this is uh, this is take two. I actually started recording earlier and then the alarm <laughs> went off on uh, this, the speakers in the house and started playing this um, music from the soundtrack of a video game that I, I quite like, but it was not going to be very nice for you guys to be listening to that kind of in the back in the background while I was talking. So, how to start this again? Um, anyway, I hope your your week has been good wherever you are. Um, the world seems to be going crazy. I've been avoiding the news recently, um, only to take a peek at it and see that there's a whole bunch of um, stuff that does not seem to be really good going on. Um, where that is violence in America, um, the hurricanes that seem to be heading for Houston, although I hope the weather report is to be believed that they don't hit as hard as they, <clears throat> as, as, as they could. Um, not to mention other fears around the world, but it seems like, I mean, even in India, there's like increased, um, problems with COVID-19 in Pakistan, there's flooding. I mean, it's pretty crazy, and I won't start talking about some of the things we're encountering in Nigeria. Um, I'm sure you all, if you are not avoiding the news like I was, you're probably already up to speed, and you probably do not want to be reminded of this stuff. Um, you know, it got me thinking a lot about how, you know, what exactly um, I'm hoping to achieve, you know, by all this stuff, all this work I'm putting into new type. Um, what is the, what's the idea? You know, what, what does the world look like with, with, with new type in it? Um, and one of the things for me is this idea of being able to, I guess maybe move away from the perspective with which we're currently looking, I mean, using to view the world. It's, um, it, you know, over the years, I've been thinking a lot about how I form my thoughts, how I form my opinions, you know, what, what my emotional responses to various things could mean. Um, what does it say about me as a person? And I can only speak for myself, obviously, because this is the, this is the viewpoint that I have and I, I have a proper proximity to. Um, and I realized that there, there's so many things that one can take for granted, and not only take for granted, but that inform how you form, how you engage with stuff, you know. Um, I had, a, I was having a conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine, Carmen, and <clears throat> we were talking about insight and how at the very, you know, foundational level, um, there is a, there are these really, really low level, you know, kind of foundational thoughts, you know, they're like a substrate upon which every other thought you have can be built on or tends to be built on. So there could be something like that a lot of people take for granted, something like being able to express yourself is good. You know, self-expression is a good thing. And that can then result in something like democracy for example, because then if the individual and the individual's right to expression is something that is um, taken for granted, 
then that individual being able to have a writing dictating their destiny also becomes taken for granted, right? And then you can keep building more and more on these things. Um, but I think it's a very useful exercise that we are not taught, taught how to do, to be honest, um, to be able to dig deep back into these foundational thought patterns and being able to look at them and ask ourselves where, what, what, what does this look like? You know, what does it create for us? And this is super important because the things we take for granted that are invisible to us are also a lot of the things that are affecting us in, in a lot of really bad ways, you know. Um, and the, the tool that we currently have for these things is um, critique. We sit down and we critique things, you know, we, or we deconstruct them. Um, we, we, we treat these things like texts, like academics. And not to say that critique itself is a bad tool. I just feel like, first of all, not a lot of people are trained in critique properly. They just think they can critique. Um, and this is not a value judgment at all. This is just to say that it takes a lot of work, you know, it takes a lot of work and, and critique tends to work also in certain contexts. Um, the context of academia, the context of the workplace, maybe, um, politics, you know, but a lot of us are not in those spaces. We are in, in a kind of casual, or, or at least we interact in casual versions of those spaces, shallower versions. And so it makes our conversations feel more satisfying than they actually should feel, maybe. Um, and if critique is not really something that works for everybody, then it got me thinking about community, you know, because even critique works within a community, a community of peers, of review, peer review, of, um, you know, publishing of papers. It doesn't just happen in your head or in conversations or, you know, a YouTube channel where you just speak out, right? It's, um, it's something that, that occurs in a, in an environment that is, at least some things that are taken for granted are that it's a good faith environment that your peers are critiquing you, even if they disagree with you vehemently, that they are critiquing you after having given your, what you say, a fair shake. And, um, I mentioned this because a lot of what is happening right now, at least from my own where I'm looking at it, you know, um, what, what I tend to encounter a lot is, is a lot of critique, this kind of critique where it's um, one side critiquing another side and always focusing on things that tend to, you know, that, that they disagree with, with that side and everything. And, um, you know, it, 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 this, this, this reminds me of a conversation I was having with my wife and it was this idea about how all humanity is like one thing or one 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 entity or we, we could think about ourselves as one entity and this in itself kind of relates to this idea that humanity as a whole our entire species is in the middle of what Carl Jung called an individuation process and individuation in Jungian psychology is the process by which a young person or a human being really sort of grows up and manages to 
merge, fuse um, all facets of their personality, both their conscious selves, the selves that they are happy to present to society, and their shadow selves, that self that they are not happy to present to society. And a lot of people hear shadow and they think about like maybe um, sexual perversion or violent thoughts, you know, psychopathy or um, maybe you you like to steal or something. You know, those, those, those parts of yourself that you're that antisocial and so you repress them. And while shadow selves do definitely contain these, these bits, shadow selves are just are not only that. The shadow self is also um, made up of parts that are, that one may perceive as being shameful. Your shadow self may have a sexual orientation, for example, that's not um, um, considered acceptable in your society or by your tribe. Um, the shadow self may have maybe the part of you that's lazy um, or that, that doesn't, or, or that has thoughts about certain issues that you feel you should not have and so you kind of repress them. But I think it's a very useful analogy for me because I, I think about humanity as a whole. Like imagine if all of us were all one mind and in that one mind, you had all these different parts, you know, that had, you know, the one time you thought about killing someone, I said one time, the multiple times you, you know, it crosses your mind that you maybe, not just to say, well, I wish this person was dead, but you imagine being the one to kill the person, or you, you wished for harm to befall someone, or you, you had a thought that you felt was not politically correct at all, and you berated yourself for even thinking it. Um, all those parts, you know, that, 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 that we like to keep in darkness. Imagine if everybody else on the planet was a part of this group human mind. And instead of trying to shout down those parts of ourselves and repress them, instead, or, or to even change them, instead of that, we were to try and individuate, you know, we were to try and incorporate them and realize that there can be an acceptance without a surrender, um, which is that you can accept that you may have anger issues, for example, and it's something that you are really acutely um, aware of and you acknowledge and you embrace even, but you don't now give in to anger whenever it comes up, you know, because you know that there's anger, you come up with strategies to be able to deal with that. Um, reading, you know, stoic texts like um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, for example, you see that a lot of stoicism back then was focused on um, dealing with anger. And it's interesting that nowadays, you know, a lot of stoicism is focused on dealing with anxiety and, and depression. Um, but regardless, you know, the, you know, philosophy in ancient times was really focused on a lot of praxis, right? It was focused on being able to put it into, into work, into daily life. It's like, how, do, how, how does the philosophy inform how you behave, how you respond to things, how you move in the world? It wasn't a, an abstracted practice where it was just more about like thinking about things that one or at least the, the general populace could believe did not affect daily life. You know, it's sort of like, you could indulge in philosophy. Um, 
because you had time or privilege. Philosophy was not for people who were practical people. It wasn't for the working class. It wasn't for people who had real life to live, you know. Um, and it wasn't like that. Philosophy was something that was, was living. It was energetic. Philosophers were in the streets. And philosophers died for their philosophies, right? Um, so <laughs> this brings me in a roundabout way, actually, to, to thinking about how how do we go back to that? How do we embrace or create and then embrace philosophies that formed a part of the, the living you know, that, that, that we do on a daily basis. Um, and in this kind of philosophy, this philosophy has to be a group one. It has to be something that, that keys into social life, to community. Um, and this is for everybody, because this is not to say that current philosophical trends, whether that's continental philosophy in Europe or otherwise, um, does not or, or cannot connect to a real life, obviously. Um, but it's just that for most people, they see philosophy as being something that does not concern them. You know, it's filled with jargon and all these terminologies. What does deconstructionism mean? You know, what does um, material realism mean? What does object-oriented ontology mean? You know, all these terminologies, all this jargon, um, all this jargon. People, it just seems alienating. So it's like, how, how do we make something that can speak to the average person and allow them to plug in something of their lives into it and can help to direct their lives forward. Um, so these, these, these things are things that I've been thinking about with new type. And I, and I guess new type in a way is a kind of philosophy, it's a kind of way of looking at oneself and looking at relationships in the environment with other human beings, with non-human beings, um, and how we engage with them. And this is why there's a whole, um, I keep looking at indigenous cultures, you know, um, both Nigerian ones, African ones, and, and worldwide in general. Like, how did those people see the world? Because there's been a shift, you know, clearly we, we are living in the world we are living in, there's been a shift away from the indigenous kind of thinking. In fact, it's framed in places that were colonized, you know, and, you know, it's, it's been framed as being lesser than the modern rational empirical way of looking at the world. Um, you know, it's seen as like, oh, people in the past believed in ghosts and spirits and they didn't know how the weather worked. That's why they worshiped Shongo, um, thinking that he was the one that uh, was shouting when there was lightning in the sky and there was thunder. Um, and the, there's a sense of gentle, at, at best, a kind of patronizing or did you know any better kind of thing? And it's like, did they really not know any better? Because one has to ask, like, there's knowledge and then there's wisdom, right? And the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, you can understand the fundamentals about something and what that could mean for a society without, without even knowing how it worked, right? Um, um, a friend of mine, Lyle, Lyle Sprong, he introduced me to this idea of a Guthian science, which is something I had never come across, and the idea of a phenomenology, phenomenology. <laughs> um, and the idea of this is you can relate to something or investigate something 
in the way that it feels to you in that moment, in that lived embodied moment, just looking at it and, and encountering it in a real way. So being able to look at a plant and not filling your head immediately with the species name or um, where you got it from, or all these other scientific approaches necessarily. And I'm not saying these are bad, but you can look at it in a in the sense of like what 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 shade of green the leaves are, how the roots, I mean how how the stems uh, connect to the various branches or the trunk of the tree and the surface of it, the bark, what other you know plant life is growing on it, you know what what animal life is growing in its, in its upper reaches. Are there worms in the soil? You know, just being able to really engage with all your senses, you know, the smell, the texture, the way it looks, any sounds, you know, of the thing, you know, of the of the, of the plant or whatever else it is you're looking at, being able to really be in the moment of that thing. And you can build an understanding of something just through paying attention to it. And attention with a, as a real intentional attention can give you a lot of information about something without you necessarily knowing stuff about like cellular membranes and vascular movements of um, <laughs> um, nutrients or photosynthesis and all these kinds of things, you know. Just watching a plant move its leaves to follow the sun can give you a lot of information about plant life and suns, you know, and, and, and the sun rather being related in some way, you know. You may interpret this as plants worshipping the sun and, you know, the sun being some kind of god. And, you know, one can come and say, oh, that's wrong, right? But in that moment, and for that plant, the sun could, might as well be god, right? You know, it's getting nutrition from it. It's, um, it's worshipping it for a reason. Um, so there's a, there's an understanding of the relationships. And I think this is something that we have we have we have moved away from a lot of people have lost that agency to be able to connect with things and be able to form their own impressions gained from observation and from attention but this can only i mean and, and this is not supposed to be some individualistic exercise where you create your own reality and then you stick with it again going back to this idea of humanity being one entity one one sentient organism we have to think about everybody as being multiple sensory organs or other people. So it's like being able to form a picture of the world from sight, hearing, smell, giving you a whole bunch of different sensory inputs and then you've been able to form a picture of what the world looks like, um, informed by what you already understand about the world. So just like that, um, um, the saying or the, or the parable maybe, of the blind men and the elephant, where there were, um, I think, I can't remember how many people, how many blind men, but let's say four. There were four blind men touching an elephant at different positions. You know, one person is at the tail, another person is at the trunk, another person is at the side, and one more person is by the ear. And because they're all blind, they can only tell things about the elephant by touch. And because of the different parts of the elephant that they're at, they are all getting different impressions of what an elephant is, as you can imagine. So the way they can get a better picture of what the elephant is, and mind you, it will soon not be a complete picture. Um, they will need to com combine their their perspectives as opposed to rejecting the other person's perspective, as opposed to saying, no, an elephant is like, is like this, because after all, I am touching this, and this is what it feels like to me. 
you have to be able to incorporate what the other people are saying and try and try and build a bigger picture, some kind of um, mosaic of what it is that you think you you are all engaging with. And and I think this is this is basically what has to happen that we have to hone our own attention and hone our ability to engage with with things. We have to hone that again and not wait for authority figures, whether in academia or otherwise, to tell us that no, you are wrong. This is how this thing works because nobody knows your own experience, right? Nobody knows my own experience, and I can and, and that experience is a valid one. Um, and it's important for me to be able to engage with it. Now, I say this in the context of also being aware of your biases. We all have cognitive biases that creep up all the time. And we have to be aware of them so that we can take them into account whenever we are paying attention to our attention faculty. Um, but then we, we now piece together this, this bigger puzzle, this bigger picture by engaging with other people and having real conversations with them. Um, and maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I should qualify real. And by that, I mean, I, can, I guess this, this idea of a generative conversation, kind of like what I'm trying to do here with a generative, um, well, I don't know, this is not a conversation because it's just me, but at least this, this, this thing of allowing, you know, kind of really being able to listen to yourself and listen to what it is that you're thinking and what you're feeling so that you allow that to come up and come out, right? And in a conversation, it means that you're also simultaneously switching between listening to yourself and listening to the other person or the other people that are talking. Because you have to be able to really listen, really feel what is coming out of somebody. And, you know, you can reiterate that and then you you listen to yourself and spread that back out. There's an exercise I heard about um, on a video. Actually, I think I think it was one of the videos I shared last week, but I'm not sure. Um, that had to do with where you, if you are sitting opposite somebody talking, the idea is you're supposed to try and guess what someone is feeling and that person can now guess what you're feeling and then you sort of have this back and forth where you you guess what the other person is feeling and then you have a conversation and you guess again and you you do this in a way so that you can start tuning tuning your senses towards that person towards that person's emotional wavelength you know if you imagine both of you as radios and as you're tuning to that person that person is also tuning to you and then you get to a point where you can get into a resonance with each other and then you just start talking because then you can really hear the person and where they're coming from and they can really hear you and where you're coming from. And you now also do that same thing internally so that you can speak from the heart and hear what they are really saying. And it's a skill that has to be trained and, you know, we have to constantly work at it because it's, especially nowadays, it's, it's something that a lot of us do not have. Most of us are not even really used to live, really, really listening to ourselves. Um, what, what most of us do instead is that we allow our emotions to control what we say. Um, we don't even know what we're about to say, you know. Um, our emotions control what we say and we are only listening to them. So somebody is talking and you're, you're constantly waiting for your, your, your opportunity to respond to what you believe they've said, you know. Um, but 
I think I think it's important to be able, you know, for us to be able to go back to this mode of being able to talk, right? Um, we, we with ourselves, you know, even in a kind of monologue like this, and with others as well, um, because in that in that we can really start communicating, <clears throat> and we can now start building this patchwork impression of what reality is, because our only one perspective is not enough. We need other we, we need other people's perspectives, and we now see that everybody has value, because everybody has a perspective, right? As long as you can engage them in this way. Um, nobody can have a shallow perspective um, because even if people are not intentionally paying attention, you know, really like looking at things, um, paying attention to things, they still have they they still seen something. Um, and I think what we can now acknowledge is that there may be a scale, maybe or a spectrum of values, right? So it's not a it's yes, a spectrum, not on a scale, because it's not about like, oh, one thing has more value than another. It's just that there are different kinds of value. And so you may be looking for a value that maybe is trying to point you towards insight or wisdom, and maybe that's a classic quality of value, and it's a different kind of value that's about knowledge or difference in perspective or something. Um and yeah, so what's the project I'm working on right now that's under new type? It's um called Hyperculture, and I've been working on it for almost a year now. I mean, from idea stage anyway, to to what's what's happening now, and it's a multi-stage project. Um, I got a grant from the British Council last year to do something with the circular, within the circular design, circular economy space. I'm supposed to have put together an exhibition in April um, alongside nine other um, participants from different African countries um, who are all from different backgrounds, some in textiles, design and fashion, some others in um, architecture, product design. Um, and we're all supposed to have done things earlier on in the year. I think a few did, but because of COVID-19 disruptions, um, a lot of stuff has been pushed back. So now I'm looking at um, putting together something on the 31st of August and then the first week of September. Um, which will be my my own take on this, and I'm working in collaboration on this first stage with a with an amazing textile designer called Yemi Yemi Awushile. I'll put the links in the in the newsletter. Um, she is based in London. She's of Nigerian descent, and we are developing a textile language. Um, and this textile language is supposed to allow people to express various stories, you know, stories about their lives um, via the garments they wear. But the way I've been thinking about this is through the idea of something called a year garment. Um, and a year garment is something that is a garment that you almost like tattoo every year. Um, and you can mark certain things, you know, maybe you moved cities or countries, maybe you got married, maybe you met someone really important to you in your life, maybe you wanted to show gratitude for health, maybe you lost someone. These are all things that you can, that we have um, various symbols for marks that you can stitch into the clothes. Um, and again, this is the idea of like tattooing them, you know. 
with the with the, with the hope that if people start doing something like this with their clothing, um, the clothes may may have more value to them than you know they may not feel as fungible or as disposable, um, swappable with other things. You know, it's like how a white shirt is a, is a white shirt is a white shirt, a white shirt is a white t-shirt. We can try and move away from this sort of um, paradigm of like fast fashion and certain kinds of clothing and just think about them as things that have a memory, um, things that connect us to our past selves um, that have a lot of value. And maybe we can even start thinking of how we pass those on to other people and keep a garment going. So a year garment can have 30 years worth of inscriptions on it, right? Um, but it's not just about the textile language or, and this idea of the year garment or, or year garments in general. It's, um, which is why the idea is called hyperculture. It's also about forming a community of people who own garments like this and can exchange them. So if um, I own something because I belong, I own a year garment because I belong in this community, um, I can, I, as, I, as, I, as I purchase this item from a, um, a provider, a maker, I get registered as the owner of this item, both on a digital level and even on the, on the physical level. Like I might be able to stitch my name or something into it. And as I continue updating this garment, one day I might decide that, you know what, I actually do, I, I do need to sell it. Maybe I need money or I'm moving and I don't have space. So I, I sell the garment and Someone else buys it. If it is sold within the community, within this hypercultural community, then that person gets registered as a new owner, you know, taking it all from me. And so you get this genealogy of an item. And in fact, if maybe that item ends up becoming too old to use and it's chopped up and used for maybe a, a rag carpet or a, or like patchwork or quilting or another thing, then that DNA gets, that genealogy follows through into that new item. So that new item gets to be said to have a bit of DNA from this other item that has this long genealogy, right? So this is the idea. Um, um, now we have to start thinking about what kinds of clothes, you know, reflect this, 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 um, these, these principles. And this goes back into this idea of philosophy because it's not just about saying, okay, let's just make because this could easily have been just a clothing line, right? But now, and I guess maybe in a way, this could be the longer project. I'm also trying to think about what does a, what does a new type or at least a, a company or an organization that follows a new type philosophy, how is that organized? How is that structured? What does that look like? What is the DNA of such a thing? And it's got to me thinking. So right, right now I'm calling them manifolds. And I'm working with um, quite a few people on this. Um, so the, the textile language itself directly is something that is going to be open source. So anybody can add to it, but there'll be a structure for how that works. And I'm doing that with Yemi initially. But then on the onto the design of the garments, I'm working with um, Alexandra Wegand in Germany. I'm working with Philip Fagbeiro and New Type itself. Um, Princess Archibong as well, who's also working in New Type. Um, we also have Carmen, who 
I'm working with on the design of the organization itself, this idea of um, which were, at least I'm, I'm thinking about calling manifolds for now. So it could be something like a hypercultural manifold. And eventually we can spiral that out into like the new type manifold, et cetera. Um, and this, um, we, we hope to, because it's a very collaborative thing and we hope to expand that to involve a lot of other people um, people that are currently working with new type, um, friends of mine that may not even be in this space at all, just to design garments, to design materials, textiles, you know, come up with different ideas. Because this is something that we want to, it doesn't belong to just new type. It doesn't belong to just me or my collaborators. It belongs to everybody. Again, this idea of humanity as a single entity, right? Um, but Again, part of this is also about designing protocols for engagement. How do we make sure that this does not become abused and people feel exploited, you know, where you're putting a lot of work into something, but somebody else can come and claim it as their own or not, they don't get any credit. How do we manage that? How do we manage the commercial side of it you know, in terms of being able to manage money? Then how do we also introduce the notion of different kinds of value other than commercial value into the project? So. There's a lot of things in here that I'm super excited about. Um, on the hyperculture front, on the manifold front, I'm treating the manifold as a, as a long going, as, as a long running, um, almost like game development project in a way, because it is a kind of game. It is a kind of world building because in this world building exercise, there is this question of what kind of um, playground, you know, or, or what kind of space could somebody create things in that has different notions of value and symmetry of information? Uh, sorry, and maybe this sounds a bit abstract now, um, because I, I guess the, the main thing is, first of all, I'm looking at a lot of companies right now that exist in the, let's say, even the capitalist system. And I'm not just talking about like your standard, bog standard, evil corporation types, but even like cooperatives, for example, like Mondragon um, may involve a lot of workers and empower them because the workers also own Mondragon and have shares in it and have voting rights, but they still operate on the larger scale as a standard capitalist organization. It's just that the shareholders happen to be the workers, right? So. How do we move away from this? How do we build something that doesn't immediately end, or at least not even if not immediately, but doesn't end up becoming an engine of extraction, an engine of dehumanization, something that is too inflexible to be able to actually provide for the needs of people and to redistribute value and re resources in a way that actively helps people, um, including its consumers, you know? So these are a lot of the questions that I'm asking myself and I'm thinking about, you know, these are the things that I'm not happy with necessarily when I think about like existing corporations and organizations, you know, things like how do we make sure that power gets distributed as evenly as possible, or at least makes it as visible and as transparently as possible so that people know where it lies. How do we ensure a symmetry of information um, between the customers of, a, of an organization and the organization itself? Symmetry of power, symmetry of value, different kinds of value, and being able to track these things and to create something that can evolve, you know. Um, 
Yesterday, I went out <clears throat> and met up with a friend of mine and we bought um, plants. Um, and I've been really, really happy with plants recently. I have a ZZ plant here, the name of which I only just found out yesterday as well. Um, and this ZZ plant has been in the house for a while, actually. I think maybe since last last year or early this year. And it wasn't doing well initially because I wasn't paying attention to it. But then once I started paying attention to it and it started thriving, you know, new 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 shoots started coming up, you know. And it's it's taught me so much, you know, just paying attention to it, watching it, observing it, seeing how it responds to its environment, to care, to neglect. Um and I think our organizations can be like this, right? Um they don't have to be these entities that initially start off very responsive and very, um, you know, very, very um, agile and transform into these large, you know, behemoths. And a lot of people, a lot of the time, that, that seems to be the trajectory that is desired as well, um, that become very inflexible. And then what the, what, what the, what the company transforms into is this thing that is essentially trying to protect itself, which is the same with all most institutions, whether that is religious ones, academic ones, commercial ones, not, not for profits. The institution becomes about the institution as opposed to being about itself or the people it serves, um, at root, you know? And so how do we make sure that we can build something that constantly keeps that there? for everybody to see that if destroying the institution is what is necessary, that it will do that in the same way that plants will, will shed leaves and die and be reborn in the same way that they pollinate, in the same way that they, they also sustain other things, other, other, other organisms. So this is what I'm, I've, I've been thinking about a lot and just trying to see if we can, we can actually do this. And so this is a long-term research project. Um, not just a research project, actually. It's a development project because this is something that we're going to put out into the world. So it's not just to research and write a report. We are enacting the research by doing. And this is something that, um, I hope you guys will be keen to see. I will. I will share information about the project. You know, the website you can check out and everything um this coming, you know, next next week on the newsletter. So please you may you may get an extra newsletter which is purely an informational thing, but then you can also check out our Instagram for for more information about it. The plan tentatively is essentially to have a video online that you can watch that gives you an overview of the story. Then there's a website that has a lot more information. And then Yami and I are going to do an Instagram live chat. Um, we'll have an Instagram live chat um, next weekend that we hope you will all be able to attend where, where we discuss the project in a little bit more detail and our own different perspectives. And you also get to hear Yemi talk a little bit about her process and her own um, intentions maybe and her own aspirations about this project as well. So yeah, I think this was a very rambling, um, very rambling edition of the, of the new type of car, but I hope at least it was, it could also maybe be 
maybe you found something that could have been useful for you in this. Um, I think that for now, what you know, all of us here, here and I think most of the people who are subscribed to this to this um, newsletter are people who are very interested in alternative futures and trying to see how we can create something that allows us to thrive. I think one of the first steps for all of us is to really start seeing ourselves in everyone. Um, I think that there's, there's one, one of the key problems we have is as, as people is that we, we other by default. Um, whether that is, you know, even just from the fact that saying that, okay, this other person is not me. I am, I am myself and that other person is another person. Um, and, you know, then we other on the, the scale of family, then we other on the scale of tribe, then we other on the scale of nation and race and gender and sexual orientation and all these other things. Um, and I think this is a very, it's a particular view of the world that has come about where there's a lot of definitions of things that are about what they are not or what they are against or what they refute. So it is you are anti-racist. Um, as opposed to being something, you know, what is the more positive leaning term that means that by default racism is not something that you do, you know? We don't, um, we don't, we don't push things like that. It's like, oh, you are feminist to show that you are against the patriarchy, etc. I think that this idea of aligning ourselves according to ideologies or where we're from and things like this may not be helpful in the long run, but again, they're just tools. So I think in the era and in the context in which a lot of these things arose, they had weight, but we can't hold on to them as identity markers. They have to be tools. We have to be able to drop them when they stop being useful, um, as opposed to identifying wholly with them. Um, and just to go back to this thing about othering, I think if we can see that other people are basically ourselves, but maybe our shadow selves or maybe the selves that that could have been because I, 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 at least my own personal belief is that everybody is basically, you know, we, we, we are all on some kind of probability curve, you know. If you have 10 people growing up in an abusive environment, maybe eight out of 10 times you would get somebody who turns out to also be abusive in some way. And then two out of those 10 times you end up with somebody who, who is um, able to be kind and loving and com completely counter to that, you know, because that, that maybe that trauma gave them a certain perspective on life, but it's all on a probability curve. The people who end up not being problematic are people who, got lucky somehow something about their brain just made some strange connections and they ended up on the other end of the spectrum i think that if we can all see that everybody around us everybody we encounter and engage with is essentially some kind of possibility that was never explored for us some kind of probability it, the probability that we that we missed out on that we did not encounter somehow um that they are all expressions of, of, of this thing called human or this thing called humanity. Um, it might be a good start because then it means that there's so much to learn about ourselves by engaging with people. And it also means that there's less to be 
really deeply upset about when we engage with other people, no matter how horrible they are being to other people. And I say this and I feel almost like hypocritical because it's also very depressing engaging with people that one does not agree with that are fun that you that in fact not just that you don't agree with but that you feel are actively hurting um others and what you believe in maybe even affecting its ability to come into being but i think it's important that we try and do this um over and over and over again i think there's something to be said for being able to really love your enemy in quotes you know um because that 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 person is yourself that that person is us you know and if we can truly do that then we could start building new things we could build things that are not oppositional and are not walls but we could build things that can really embrace everybody um, and allow for multiple expressions okay well thank you this was longer than the last one but i hope it wasn't um, boring <laughs> and you saw, you found it interesting. I, I, I now have to listen to this all over again in order to be able to pick up some of the links I promised I would share. But yeah, have a great week ahead and looking forward to getting some responses. Before I close, I'll just like to thank if you know those people who sent me messages or told me about what they thought about the first um, edition of the podcast. Really, really grateful to the kind words um, that was shared by, by you guys. I really, really appreciate it. Um, it makes me feel like at least doing this is, it's, it's at least I'm speaking to someone. Um, so thank you so much. Have a great day.